If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Dallas Campbell is one of the most celebrated science television presenters in the UK. He has been communicating complicated ideas to the nation for years, including on television's most popular factual shows, Bang Goes a Theory and The Gadget Show. But what does it really take to engage an audience? In this interview, Dallas shares the secrets of effective communication. If you enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this interview, Ginesh Taylor. Hi, everybody. I'm sure most of you in this audience will have heard of Dallas, seen one of his programs before. So I was going to say, for those of you who don't know me, what I should say is I'm a molecular biologist and I do a bit of science communication. So in this context, I get the best seat in the house for asking the questions to Dallas about how to communicate science. So first question, Dallas, you should mm. probably remember this, but like, how did you first get into science communication and broadcasting? It's a good question. I, I, so I'm not a molecular biologist, I should, I should say from the, from the outset. Uh, and in fact, I'm not a scientist at all. And people are always slightly confused, I think, when, when they meet me, because generally when you see science on television, it's done by scientists. It's done by Professor Brian Cox, oh, I see. or it's done by oh, Professor yeah. Alice Roberts, or it's done by Richard Dawkins, whoever it, whoever it is. It's generally scientists telling you stuff. I actually started, started working in, uh, this is, you know, 30 years ago, I actually started off uh, working in drama. So I trained as an, uh, I worked as an, as an actor. Uh, doing drama for, for, for a while. I wasn't a very good actor because I was an actor who, uh, instead of reading Stanislavski and such, I ended up, I spent too much time reading New Scientist because I was always really interested in science about how the world works and how nature works. I just wasn't a scientist. I'm just, in the same way that I love listening to music, but I'm a, I don't play music. You know, or I like watching sport, but I don't actually play the sport. But for somehow, I was always really confused that science is somehow sort of other. Like, why is it that if you're interested in science, People just kind of assume you must be a scientist. Anyway, I was living in America at the time, and uh, I was in a bar, uh, the short stop it was, I remember very clearly, uh, with my friend Jonathan. And we were having just a, a discussion about this, about science. And we were both actors. We both weren't involved in science or academia at all. And we, were, and we had this conversation. We were like, well, how come, why is it only scientists get to talk about science? Mm. Why, you know, why, 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 why don't we, we should do a show rather than Professor... 
Ganesh telling you stuff. I've, I've been promoted in the last 10 minutes. Telling you all about molecular biology. Why don't we get like an idiot to go and like <laughs> find stuff out? Like a kind of bottom up mm. kind of science show. And th this was 2003, oh, actually earlier, 2001. So this is a long, long time ago. So anyway, we came up with this science show idea, which was, and we thought, well, who's the idiot? Well, I'll do it because I'm really bad at science. I don't have any science qualifications. I failed all my science O-levels, et cetera, et cetera. And so we did this show um, and we managed to sell it to the Discovery Channel. Like bizarrely, we were like, okay. So we got to make the show for the Discovery Channel. And the premise of the show was each week Dallas goes on a mission to try and do an impossible thing. And it was called Dallas and Wonderland. And so mission one was this week, I'm going to break the men's 100 meters record. You know, and then this week, I'm going to journey to the center of the earth. And then this week, I'm going to get abducted by aliens. And so by not being able to do the thing each week, you learn about the thing. So for example, the 100 meters episode we did by me trying to do this ridiculous task, which is right. quite clearly I'm not going to be able to do it. But you learn all about sports science. You learn about sports psychology. You learn about biomechanics and training and all this kind of stuff. And it was actually a really good, it was a good show. But we, we were obsessed by, it was right when The Life Aquatic came out. And I was really obsessed by, by that film, by like the aesthetics of that film. Um, and Bill Murray in that film. And, and I, I really like the idea of just like a bunch of idiots kind of having adventures and, you know, which is what that film was about. But also it was in that kind of Wes Anderson way, beautifully shot, wonderful color palettes. And the music was really amazing. And I remember the, 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 the band Devo, who this 80s pop band, some of you will remember Devo, the, the, the lead singer, of, well, one of the members of Devo, Mark Mothersbaugh, does a lot of music and does all the music for Wes Anderson's films. And I was looking at the sleeve notes of The Life Aquatic, and I noticed that Mark Mothers had done the music. And I'm like, we, we totally want that kind of music for our show, for right. our Discovery show, because we want it to feel a bit like The Life Aquatic. And I noticed that, but just by reading the sleeve notes, that he had a recording studio just down the road from where we were living. So, we, you know, this is on Hollywood Boulevard. It was the old Rocky Bullwinkle Museum. And so I thought, fuck it, I'm going to go. And we drove down there. I remember knocking on the door oh my gosh, and I he answered. This. And I'm like, listen, this is ridiculous. Oh we're doing God. this show for Discovery. <laughs> we've been meeting composers, and, but we're, oh, and we're, all we've been saying is we want someone a bit like Mark Mothersbaugh. And eventually he sort of did the music for us. Love it. So we were, but we were a bit arch for Discovery. Huh. We were a bit kind of, it was a bit, what, I think we were, I don't know. We got fired after one season of doing this, <laughs> of doing this thing. And we, were, and we were ejected back to the UK for being too... Um, too I'm on guard. Well... I didn't think we were being on guard, but they were like, they were like, could you do like a Shark Week episode? Like it was when Discovery were all about, you know, they wanted Shark Week every week, and and, and we weren't really that. We Dallas were... gets eaten by a anyway, shark. Anyway, so that was the answer. So that so that's kind of where it started, and then after that, I came back to the UK, and then I, you know, having done that show and having sort of created that idea of like idiot tries to go on, tries to find stuff out. Then we then I did you know stuff. I joined the BBC. Well, I, I did the Gadget Show for a while, and then BBC stuff. I mean, it, there's two things that come into my mind in that. There's one thing that you talked about, which is the aesthetic of the show in itself, like the sort of quirky side of things. Yeah. Let's park that for a second. I think it sounds an awful lot like the fact that you basically, as a non-expert, sorry. No, I am a non-expert. Yeah. But I think that actually might be part of the appeal, it sounds like. Like, do you feel like that's what you brought to, to these sorts of... Definitely. I, I think it's really important. When, you know, when we're talking about science, science still is seen as other people do science. So if you're not connected to science or academia, science is something else. And, and, and I think that's, well, A, it's a shame because science is too interesting just to be left to, for scientists yeah. to talk about. Yeah, and B, also, it's really important for the general populace, not just to, obviously, you know, to be educated in, in what science is and how science works, 
but also just because it's interesting, because science is just intrinsically an interesting thing to talk yeah. about, how the world works, how nature works, why things are the way they are, the things that we don't understand, which are, you know, mm. for me, infinitely more interesting than the things that we do understand. Yeah. And that's like, like any other form of human culture, science should be, should be there for everyone. And we, you know, you mentioned Bango's a theory. That we, you know, we got to do this family science show on BBC One. And, you know, the reason I was on that show, you know, we had, you know, academics as well. So we had Liz Bonin on it and we had Jem Stansfield and we had Yan Wong. And my role was the kind of, you know, again, the sort of every man. It's like me yeah. not being an expert, asking questions. I, 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 in a way, I had the license to ask the stupid questions because, you know, when you become a professor, it suddenly becomes harder to oh. ask the stupid questions. I but mean, for me, it's okay to ask the stupid questions. Yeah, I mean, we, there's a whole separate talk to be had about why it's not acceptable for some people to ask questions, whereas for others... But it shouldn't be. It's ridiculous. It shouldn't, it it's shouldn't a, be like that. We have a really, we have a really silly culture of, yeah. of, of, of how we talk about science still. Yeah. And, our, you know, our, our, you know, our whole mantra of Bango's theory was like taking science out of the lab and into people's lives yeah. and actually, you know, giving people permission to feel like they're allowed to talk about science. Because um, I think... Certainly for me, you know, years ago, I, I felt, oh, shit, science, I'm not allowed to kind yeah. of, that's, not, that's, that's something else. Yeah. I mean, you've also talked about questions, right? So do you feel like, what came first, do you think, your curiosity about science or the fact that once you got into it, it becomes that much, like, you just, there's always a why the moment you're told any kind of scientific thing. I think when I was at school doing science, I just didn't, it's not that I didn't get it, I didn't want to get it because I, I saw science as the thing that those people did, you know, and I was too busy listening to these, the Smiths. These people. Yeah, I was, you know, <laughs> I was the Smiths because it was the 1980s. So I was listening to the Smiths and science was sort of over there yeah. somewhere. And it wasn't until, I guess, probably until my sort of early 20s. I mean, but, but then again, you know, even though science was over there, I, I grew up watching BBC Science. I used to love watching Tomorrow's World. You know, I was fascinated by that. I used to love watching, like everyone, I watched David Attenborough and I watched you know, connections with James Burke. And, you know, I grew up watching, you know, Apollo stuff happening because I'm, I'm of that age. So that was, that was all in the background. And I found, I found all that world very interesting, but I just didn't associate it with, you know, learning science. I didn't yeah. want to be a scientist yeah. in the same way that I like listening to Beethoven and I don't want to be a pianist. That's okay. I think sometime in my early 20s, actually, I, I chanced upon, actually it was the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures in, I think it was 91 or 92, and there was this guy presenting it whose name was Richard Dawkins. But I remember Richard Dawkins, this young, you know, rather attractive sort of professor just talking very eloquently about evolution. I'd, I'd never, I didn't really understand how, I, you know, yeah. I, like everyone else, I kind of, I, I sort of, had a basic grasp of it, but I didn't really understand it. And he just explained it so beautifully, so, so simply, so elegantly. And I remember watching this Christmas lecture and it was like the windows opening and this yeah. kind of draft coming in. I was like, why did no one, I, it's so interesting. Why the hell did no one tell me that when I was at school? Yeah. And so I became really, really fascinated by, by that. And I remember reading, soon after that, I read The Blind Watchmaker, one of his books, absolutely fascinating. And then I did a, I worked with a director, this guy, Ken Campbell, and I sort of helped him on a, he was doing a series called Reality on the Rocks, which is a, like my own sort of idea. Ken Campbell tries to go on a mission to try and understand quantum mechanics. And so I got really interested in the kind of that world of crazy stuff we don't understand. And, 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 and so, yeah, I just became really interested in the whys and the, and the, 
cows and the... Let's, let's double down on that point. So what do you think it was about that, the, the style of that particular science communication thing that you saw? Like, let's drill down on the, on the communication point. What, okay. is it, what is it that you think is successful or accessible it or was just, not? It was just simple. It was the simplicity of it. Mm. Like, behind any science, generally, there is a really simple idea that anyone can grasp, even an idiot like me can grasp. And that, that's what I got. The wonderful thing about that particular lecture is that it wasn't, very often, sometimes science communication, they, they, it gets obfuscated in a kind of word salad in order yeah. to make it look complicated because sometimes, some, or somehow science must be, it must be complicated. Otherwise, because I'm far above that. You know, when we were doing Bango's Theory, for example, that was a 7.30 just after the one show, BBC One wow. TV show. Yeah. And our benchmark was, look, if, you know, my mum can't understand it, it doesn't go in the show. And that, right. that's kind of what it was. And we'd call my mum and like, do you understand this? And she'd be like, yeah, we understand that. And that's how it should be. And, but sometimes we get things like, oh, they're just dumbing down science. And I know anyone who uses the word dumbing, dumbing down when they talk about science is a rude word. <laughs> because because be, behind that, is that idea that it's, it's about making you feel superior. Yeah. And, 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 so, and so for me, I, I'm no, I make no apologies about making, just telling the simple story of whatever, whatever it is okay. that we're talking about. I'm going to go completely off-piste here and take my privileges as the, the chair. Do you, so we've talked actually about, you know, we mentioned before about scientists maybe not feeling comfortable to be seen to not know the answer or asking yeah. questions. You've also said about this, like, needing to feel like, I know and I do the imparting. This is how I do my communication, just so you know, <laughs> like this. Um, but am I allowed to ask, have you ever felt while you were preparing any of these shows that there was any kind of just like, who is this guy? I, I think scientists who I really respect know. Because like good scientists, I said good scientists, like, I don't mean in the kind of value judgment, but like proper scientists who, are, who have humility and are comfortable in their own skin. Bien dans sa peau, mm. I think the French say. To be comfortable as one, one's own. They don't mind it. They're happy to sort of talk about it and talk openly and talk plainly. It's the kind of scientists who are enthralled with themselves like to sort of slightly obfuscate and, and like to sort of talk in a way that makes them sort of feel very superior. And actually when I was doing Bang and, and what I like to do and, and the thing that I'm, I suppose, most proud of is, is making, making scientists feel comfortable about being human beings yeah. and actually just talking like a human being. And it's a problem with academia generally because with academia, like most areas in life, everyone's worried about what, oh, you know, what, what's my boss going to think? What, you know, I've got to say it like this and oh, I'm going to be misrepresented by the media and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And actually the good side, you know, good people, good communicators are people who like, you know, don't worry about any of that stuff and just yeah. talk. It's why people like sort of Carl Sagan was such a great science communicator because he just talked like a human being and we could all relate to it and he would just tell you the story and it was, it was, there was a, a simplicity and an ease to it. Mm. There wasn't any, you know, anything to, wasn't, it wasn't in any way self-serving. That's really interesting. Um, but yeah, sometimes scientists can get a little bit, oh God, I'm going to be, you know, I've got to, it's more, you know. Yeah. And it, I like to be able to talk to scientists and, and hopefully get them just to chat and, you know, humor is a good way of doing that and actually just True. try and be, you know, not like, funny all the time but actually just yeah. speak in a relaxed way yeah to see the lighter side of things yeah the thing is about you know science is and part of the problem with science and we see this we've seen this through the pandemic is you know people get their scientific knowledge from people they trust okay and whose values they share they don't get it from just being told facts 
Facts is not a good way of, 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 of understanding the world around you. You know, facts are facts. You know, we're humans. We understand story. We understand shared values, shared experiences. And that's why you see so much polarization in, yeah. in, in, you know, in, in, in the way science is communicated, particularly in the pandemic. Because, you know, if you are a, a sort of a right-wing libertarian and you have a deep mistrust of governments and institutions and of science and the media, whatever they tell you, however loudly they shout facts, it's just not going to... It's not gonna. It's not gonna. It's not gonna. It's not gonna hit home. That, that's that's the issue. So I've always tried to sort of be a slight bridge between academia and, and the public. And the public. There's there's something interesting in that already. The the like the idea of how people learn and the kinds of characters they're willing to learn from actually. Yeah. And and it's interesting you say about similarity because I mean this is just my personal opinion now. But it if you can only learn from people with whom you agree upon with different things, you, you get into pretty hairy territory pretty fast, no? It's really, it's, yeah, it's, it's really difficult. And, but I think scientists and everyone needs to understand how, how human psychology works and, and why we sort of get ourselves into a mess and why just shouting facts at people isn't going to change my... The thing is, you know, me, I spend all my time with scientists. You know, I work with scientists, I work with academics, and, and I work in the media. So, those, so I'm naturally... These are people I trust because they're, you know, they're a part of my tribe. But if you're not that, and if you have a deep mistrust of the media, yeah. and, if you, um, and if you think scientists are all a bunch of liberal, you know, elitist, da, right. da, 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 and you're not that, then yeah. it, it makes sense, you know, and, people, and they're just talking to you like you're, you're, like you're an idiot, then it makes sense that you're going to you know, you're, you're going to have different values. I mean, so in that case, let's, let's segue into this. If I was to say to you, Dallas, I ring you up, Dallas, I'm off to do a really tough gig. I need to try and explain to a really close, like a really questionable audience, or I'm worried that they're not going to be there for it. And I want to tell them about whatever, genome editing human beings, let's say. Yeah. How do I, A, persuade them to listen to me? And B, I mean, the title of the session was how to get them excited about it, because that's like a different gradation. What would you, what would you be saying to me, apart from don't do it? No, I would say do do it and, and, just, and, and just be your natural, charming self. <laughs> it's funny, I went to a flat earth convention in Birmingham a couple of years ago. Because I was as really, you do, as yeah, you do. Wait, because I want to be, a backstory to this? Yeah, because I was really interested in this question. I was interested in what, okay, well, what, here's a really interesting phenomena. Why is it? You know, people weren't talking about flat Earth 10 years ago. Why are we suddenly talking? Why is everyone believing in the, in the Earth being flat? And I went and I, there was, I was there with some, there were some PhD uh, or postdoc astrophysicists from Imperial there. Actually, it's funny because I think most of the people there were actually people like me trying to figure out what the hell was going on. There's actually very few flat Earth. No, there was quite a lot of flat Earth. Actually, it was set up by the psychologist. It was a honey well, trap for I think it, people I think it, interested in this kind of thing. But, it was in, but the interesting point was, was, and they actually, sort of, they actually, there was a challenge to a debate, not challenge, that's the wrong word, but there was a, agreed there was going to be a friendly discussion. And what was interesting was just how bad the, the postdocs were at explaining why the earth was round. Like they, it was really difficult. And the reason it was difficult, because their points of reference or their, their evidence was things like NASA and, and mm. the science and, and, and everything else. And the flat earthers, they're not anti-science. They can talk about gravitational waves and they can talk about accretion disks and they can talk about all the, all the stuff. It's scientists they don't trust. So if I say to the, the flat earthers, look, here's a picture of Apollo. You know, this was taken by Apollo, uh, Apollo 8, 1968. You know, and it's the famous 
pale blue, you know, the famous, you know, blue marble shop, you know, Earthrise or whatever. You can see it. And they're like, ah, oh, yes, but NASA's fake. So it's not the science they disagree. It's the scientists. It's the institutions. And that's, and that's the problem. And that, you know, we saw it in Brexit, you know, yeah. a mistrust, yeah, polarization yeah. Of, of suddenly institutions that we used to take for granted. And of course, it's all been amplified by social media. So suddenly these disparate groups. I mean, it was funny that the show Dallas and Wonderland that we were doing, we did a show about journeying to the center of the earth. And the sort of act three of that show is a kind of joke. We went to see some people who believed the earth was hollow. And then, you know, that was, that was the, the kind of Louis Theroux-esque kind of end to the show. And actually, flat earth didn't exist then. People believe the earth is hollow. And, but it was such a, a fringe idea. But now, like, flat earth is, like, massive. It's, yeah. like, a huge thing because of YouTube, because of the way that social media algorithms are set up. You know, these kind of disparate kind of ideas suddenly find themselves and they sort of gravitate towards each other and these sort of, and these yeah. movements grow. But no, it's funny because, you know, you talk to the flat earthers, they'll tell you all the science and they'll talk to you about distances to horizons and the way that aeroplanes fly and all this right, kind right. of craziness but they just don't believe in so as soon as you say nasa you're kind of that's it it's impossible to argue somebody out of an illogical situation if logic didn't get them there to begin with so yeah no that's really interesting i mean obviously you know i, I do science and i feel one of the things that's happened in the last few years that's such a pretentious thing to say as well isn't it i what? do science i, I do, I, yeah, I, no, I, do no. si I don't mean it in that way i'm sorry i mean as in you know, my, I'm a scientist professionally, but I think one of the things that's happened in the last few years is because there's this sort of increasing trend of like mistrust in science and science institutions in particular, there's this sort of like, you know, you should go out there and like it's your job to fix this to the scientists. There's increasing pressure on the scientists to get out there and do their best. But yeah. as you've kind of alluded, they aren't always the best at doing that. Um, and then there's this sort of disparity between like how do you, how do you, is the gap between the dis mistrust and the fact that, you know, scientists are the ones doing this thing so large that you do actually need, I hate to use this phrase, but like a middleman. Do you actually need somebody, do you need like a vector, like a cleansing system so that they don't have to mistrust you? Or what do you think? I think it's a bit of everything. I think, I, I think you know, for scientists, I think this idea of outreach and, and, yeah. uh, was a bit frowned upon if you're yeah. a serious scientist you know, a decade ago and you did outreach, you were, it was seen as a little bit kind of, you know, serious scientists don't do that. Yeah. You know, I think that's, I think that's definitely changing and, and, and for the better that serious scientists are expected to kind of go out and, and talk to the public and not in a kind of hectoring, lecture, yeah, lecturing yeah. way, but just like talk about, in, you know, I think we have a fundamental problem in that I don't think, I think very often people don't really understand what science is. I think people tend to think or people who are perhaps a little bit anti-science, and I'm using, it's probably the wrong term, but they think of science as a kind of a book of facts, yeah. as this is yeah, authority, yeah. we yeah. tell you stuff. Science isn't that. Science is just a verb. It's a way that you do, it's a, it's a method. It's a way that you kind of explore the world. It's not about facts and things. You know, when I see anti-vaxxers and stuff online going, oh yes, but science said masks didn't work, and now they say masks do work, as if that's like, ah, ha, ha. No, that's what science, it doesn't know anything. You know, science looks at the best data at the time and then it changes its mind all the time. And I think people very often don't really understand that because they think of science as the science of school lessons. They think of like, science is facts. This is what it is. You know, this, that, and the, and the other. And science is constantly changing its mind because that's what science is. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's a filter. It's a lens on which we see the world 
for, you know, the idea is it's free from your biases and my biases. It looks at data coming in and it makes assumptions until better data comes in, then it changes. You know, and, 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 and people still, I think, very often see, see that as somehow a flaw. I mean, but also, I mean, we've talked about human psychology. I think it's also kind of a bit uncomfortable for a lot of people because a lot of what science is about is saying, yes, probably, kind of. It is like this to the best of our ability. There's no like clickbait title. There exactly. shouldn't be in science. Uncertainty yeah. is the engine of science. There you go. Uncertainty There's is clickbait what, title right there. It is. It, it, it <laughs> is. They, but it's true. Uncertainty is what makes science work. It's what science is. It's how and and, and what scientists do all day is try to sort of manage that uncertainty and try to kind of figure out you know how can we make the error bars less. If you, if you like. And it's nothing more than that. And the problem is when scientists start lecturing, especially if it's, you know, if you're lecturing, you know, people with perhaps different values or different ways of seeing the world than you are, then what you do is you, you kind of, you, you make them assume a sort of authority and people kind of become, people become resentful of that, you know, and, and, and misinformation spreads and then social media companies say, right, we're going to ban that. And then they see that, that their thing being banned is further evidence of some elitist conspiracy and, and, and the whole yeah. thing kind of grows and gets kind of crazy. But that's a hard ask, isn't it? How do you get people excited about something that is deeply uncertain and they can't? Well, no, I think it's exciting. I think if you can sell uncertainty as a good thing, as an interesting thing, as an exciting thing to the public, and that's what I've always tried to do. It's like, well, you know, we don't know. That's why I like doing stories about the science that we don't know, because there is uncertainty and we don't know. And if you can sell that as a concept, you know, and couch it in interesting story and understand how story works and stop shouting at everyone on Twitter and stop being, you know, and stop thinking you're so virtuous on Twitter and you guys are idiots. Yeah. Then you, 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 that has to stop. That whole kind of, you know, every, everyone thinks they're, the, they're the, in the they're right. right. Everyone thinks they're the yeah. virtuous ones. Everyone with their sort of, oh, I'm, look at me being kind, yeah. you know, and everyone needs to just kind of calm down and actually start kind of slightly building bridges, I think. Amazing. Um, with that, I'd like to thank Dallas for his time. Thank you, everyone who came today. And um, yeah, keep the conversation going. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.